This is an ABC podcast. Okay, Joey, what is it? I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Today on the show, reporter Joey Watson is in the offices underneath the Sydney Jewish Museum. He's here to see a retired professor named Conrad Queet. These days, Conrad is the museum's chief historian. He spends his days researching Jewish history from Australia. But back in the 1970s and 80s, Conrad spent a lot of time in the former East Germany, a communist country separated from the West by the Berlin Wall. And it turns out that while Conrad was researching in East Germany, East Germany was researching him too. I was born here in 41, yeah. Walking behind Conrad through Sydney's Jewish Museum, he looks every part the grandfatherly historian. Socks and sandals, woolen vest. In the office is a desk full of manuscripts and old books. That was Poland. That was Germany then. I was born here. That's now Poland. Ah. Hanging on the wall is a laminated map of Europe. In Pomerania, at the Baltic Sea. It was a very remote area. On closer inspection, it pinpoints the location of the concentration camps that littered the continent throughout the Second World War, a constellation of pins and arrows. Conrad's father was Catholic, but his mother was Jewish, which was a big deal in Nazi Germany. The Nazis introduced a racial criteria to define the concept of Jew. Pressure was imposed to all mixed marriages. Under Nazi Germany's oppressive racial laws, if Conrad's parents divorced, the entire family could be sent to concentration camps. They had to make their so-called mixed marriage work as a matter of survival. But even then, life for them remained very difficult. My mother discriminated. She couldn't work. My siblings couldn't go to public school. So it was one of those victim groups which survived the war. Partly in hiding, but under the surface, but we survived it. Do you have any memories of being Jewish in Germany during the war? My first memory goes back to 45, when I was four years, and that was related to the air raids where we were living, and I have clear memories of bombardments and being in, a, in, a, in an air raid shelter, and once the bombardment was over, yeah, moving out and finding a way through rubble of corpses, injured and dead people. When the war finally ended in 1945, Conrad's parents divorced and his father disappeared. His mother, free to practice medicine again, took Conrad and his seven brothers and sisters to live with family in Holland, giving her space to re-establish herself. I lived with an auntie whose uh, partner had been arrested, deported and killed. She was very bitter, so I had that kind of uh, situation of being on one side, yeah, a half-Jew, a German, and growing up in a milieu of of Jews who didn't want to have anything to do with Germans. In hindsight, I thought it was not one of my most happiest time. It left some scars. With this family around him, Conrad naturally begins to dwell on history 
Finishing high school, he worked his way into academia between Amsterdam and Berlin. In Europe, where Jewish history had faded after the war, Conrad is one of the first German historians to become interested in the Holocaust, its pioneering research. The family background or my, my past, particularly the early years, were very important for me and for my later career. And I was one of the very first yeah, German historians, young historians who moved in that area. Now I'm one of the eldest and already gone. At the house of Arne Frank in Amsterdam, he becomes one of the first German-speaking tour guides, confronting German tourists with their past through the memory of a young girl with a diary who spent years with her family in an annex. They had just opened the Anne Frank house. It was in the early 60s. There was hardly any money involved, but it was quite a challenging job. I recall this, yeah, going through that kind of secret annex and telling the visitors what happened with Anne Frank. So I had from then a very close connection, in a way, to the Anne Frank story. That often had a very strong emotional effect upon me and, and the visitors. Then, in the early 1970s, Conrad, a burgeoning academic, is sent a messy manuscript by an academic institute in London. It had been compiled by a man named Helmut Eschweger, and it needed work. But it didn't have any major framework or any research input, in particular no archival material. Helmut lived on the other side of the Iron Curtain, in the East German greyness of Dresden, a lapsed Jew with an orthodox upbringing. Helmut had survived the Holocaust by fleeing to Palestine. After the war, he'd returned to East Germany, driven by his communist convictions and a quest to keep the memory of the European Jewry alive. For years, he'd been documenting the Jewish resistance against Nazism in Germany. He was a fascinating character. Yeah, he collected books, he collected documents, yeah, and he needed someone in the West, more or less, to, to finish his work. The Institute wanted to know if Conrad would collaborate with Helmut to publish a book chronicling the stories of Jews that had fought back against Nazi tyranny. The resistance of Jews was also not a topic discussed in scholarship, yeah, because the general idea by then was that Jews yeah, went like lamb to the slaughter and that they didn't yeah, stand up. And what we did, we extended the kind of response, what is today called Amida, standing up. To work with Helmut, Conrad would have to travel to East Germany regularly. This was rare for a Westerner. The GDR had broken away from West Germany after the war. It was hermetically sealed, a command economy. They were building the foundations of a communist wonderland that they believed would soon overtake its Western counterpart in every measurable way. In reality, foreigners and high-ranking officials had exclusive access to stores filled with imported foods and delicacies, while average people often faced bare shelves at the supermarket. It was a strictly reglamented economic system. People didn't earn a lot of money, yeah, and their standard of living was far below the standard of living. You could see from the landscapes, the city landscape, or even the landscape of villages, that they were far behind. It was always somewhat backward. Life in the GDR was heavily regulated in every way. 
Conrad needed a permit for everything. Permits to move, permits for the car, permits for the contents of the car. And behind this control was the Stasi, one of the most powerful and present spy agencies of the Cold War. By knowing everything about everyone, they believed they could rid the GDR of dissident elements and the country's communist destiny would be realised. The Stasi took once, when I was planning to visit him in Dresden, a huge, what is it, 50, 60 pages, which I wanted to show him to go through. And they took this, uh, confiscated, at the S-Bahn station in East Berlin. Yeah, They knew that I was coming, obviously had informed them that I'm coming. They took that away and I got it back, or he got it back six weeks later, after they have checked it. Through all the travel permits and police checkpoints, a friendship developed between Conrad and Helmut. From very different backgrounds, both knew what it was to be an alien in their own land, and to do everything it takes to survive through war and hardship. They were both driven by a desire to never forget. He lived in a very small flat with his second wife and a daughter, the flat was covered with old books. He, he was a character. He was small, he was um, drahtig. I don't know what drahtig is. Um, drahtig means able-bodied. He makes jokes. He, he, he knew a lot of Jewish jokes, yeah? And he knew a lot of things which I didn't know. Yeah, So I learned a lot, a great deal from him. History of past. Eh? going through all these various events or tribulation of, of history, it has marked, it has left its mark on him. Eventually, Conrad takes his Holocaust research to Australia. We would lived in Coogee, marvellous. He takes a professorship at the University of New South Wales in the mid-80s. He and Helmut maintain their friendship through letters updating each other on their lives and work. And in Australia... Conrad is finally able to publish the years of research he had done with Helmut in East Germany. And the result of that after, what is it, seven years, uh, we produced a book on the resistance of German Jews. It was the first comprehensive study on how Jews responded to defamation and discrimination uh, in political circles, but also committing suicide emigrating, resisting in camps. It was a first. I mean, much has been written about that now, but fighting yeah, to survive and for dignity. Yeah. This book is a monumental collaboration between men from both sides of the Cold War. But soon after it's published, history destroys the boundaries between East and West. What you're watching live on television is a historic moment, a moment that will live forever. You're seeing the destruction of the Berlin Wall, the dividing line between East and West Germany. On the other side of the wall, young East Germans have rushed through the Brandenburg Gate, undeterred by water cannons fired at them. In 1989, Conrad is visiting Berlin, where he witnesses history firsthand. The fall of the wall, I thought, would never happen, and suddenly it happened, and I watched it. The most symbolic event of the weekend, though, came on Sunday when East German workmen opened a new gateway in the wall at Potsdamer Platz, 
once Berlin's busiest square, the place where Hitler killed himself and the spot where work on the wall began 28 years ago. Cheered on by a huge and chaotic crowd. And there was this great moment where the crane lifted one part of the wall and then I took one of my children on my shoulders and we walked from one entrance to the exit. Now this was, I think, one of the most incredible moments of my entire life. In the end, the East German state collapses virtually overnight. The dream of a communist utopia folds in on itself so quickly that it catches its own government off guard. But some things endure. The state's surveillance apparatus had amassed such a huge trove of documents and data that as the war fell, it didn't have enough time to destroy it all. East Germans inherit a massive archive of previously classified files that document their every move and the most personal details of their lives. Millions of documents which survived the collapse of the GDR Normally you would have thought they would have shredded or burnt it or destroyed it by trashing, by, by emptying the thresholds. They didn't forget that. So as the reach of the Stasi becomes apparent, many people who had been involved in the country, especially on tightly controlled subjects like politics and history, assume that they had been watched. Conrad starts to wonder if he'd been the subject of surveillance on all those trips behind the Iron Curtain to see Helmut. In 2007... He applies to see if there's a file under his name at the Stasi archive in Berlin. It was a huge building close to the Alexanderplatz. Huge! Conrad was proven right. Back in his office in Sydney, he drops a thick manila folder on the table in front of me. Of course, I found that quite amazing of seeing then what they had. And what I found here is that most of the stuff was blacked out. And it was always, as I learned, blacked out if other persons were involved. Between the blotches of blacked out information, it's clear the Stasi had known him well. So this is what the Stasi more or less found. They had watched him at train stations and parks, Helmut's shoebox apartment in Dresden. These are my, my bio lines, yeah? which the Stasi has done about me. They knew when he was coming and going from East Germany. These were results of, of when they took me out of the train in Berlin. They knew that when I was going. What and who he had with him. And that I would meet him at the railway station at the bank at 10 or 30, as we have arranged that. Yeah, they got that. The progress of his research also got the manuscript, which I did. The conferences he attended. And that was in 75. The people who spoke at them. They all collected that. What they spoke about. These are the travel details via Friedrichstraße. They're personal details. This is my first wife. That's my car. This is quite interesting. This was my first report, which I wrote on the resistance of German Jews. They also got that. Conrad is surprised, but he's not shocked. It was widely known that foreigners could be watched closely, especially when working on something as politically sensitive as historical research with an East German academic. But 
As Conrad scans through the report, he realises something quite remarkable. The Stasi surveillance of his life, it didn't end there. So my address in Australia. They were watching him even in Australia. These are reports from the Stasi on certain meetings which I had. They knew his address in the inner city suburb of Paddington and the address of his mother who had migrated ahead of him. They called it as my second address. Hmm? Currently, a docent, a teacher of Marxism-Leninist was at the University of Sydney. Sometimes the Stasi file was so thorough that it reacquainted Conrad with parts of his own life. Flicking through the surveillance report, at the bottom of almost every page is the code name of the agent assigned to watch Conrad in East Germany and Australia. And there is where I got the name Ferdinand, yeah, when I got this, in what's called an EM, an inofficial, what is it, uh, Mitarbeiter, an informant who uh, worked for the Stasi and the code name, who is Ferdinand? It's estimated that as many as one in six East Germans had some connection to the Stasi. They ranged from professional agents to regular people informing on friends or colleagues. Some did it for money or other perks, a better apartment, access to top jobs. Others were doing it to avoid being persecuted. They were found on some small infraction and offered the chance to inform as a way of clearing their record. Some, we can only imagine, just believed in the communist mythology. So, in 2020, Conrad contacts the Stasi archives to see if he can find the identity of Ferdinand. Enough time had passed, he argued, and it was his right to be told who had spied on him for all those years. While he waits for a response, Conrad starts trawling through his memories. Who could have followed him from East Germany all the way to Australia? I met in East Berlin... um socialist or communist of Jewish origin, but I've never, we, we communicated, I've met them, we spoke. Conrad had mixed with socialist academics throughout Europe. Did any of them work for the Stasi? He also had theories about a German exchange student who sat in on his lectures. There were visiting professors he hosted with links to the GDR. His wife was a German teacher. Perhaps it was someone he knew in the German-Australian community. I think there were two or three of them whom I met. And I've said maybe twice or even three times for four weeks, six weeks. And they gave some lectures, we met, and that was fine. Then, in late 2021, Conrad calls me to his office. Okay, Joey, what is it? He's heard back from the Stasi archives in Berlin, who finally released the details of Ferdinand's identity. I'm expecting Conrad to be flustered, annoyed, triumphant, but he's calmer than all that. Sitting behind his desk, he tells me that once he'd found out, he realises he might have seen it coming all along. And then it turns out that Ferdinand was Helmut Eschweger. Helmut Eschweger was the informant. After Conrad had moved to Sydney, they had maintained a friendship through letters. These had been intercepted. This is a letter which I wrote to Helmut and all the correspondence which I sent to him. So, my dear, good Helmut. So I wrote that in. Helmut, his collaborator, his friend, had a front row seat to his life. And after 40 years, he trusted the man. 
shared details of his research, his family, his mother, all of which went straight to the Stasi. I expected that Conrad would feel betrayed, but he's remarkably undisturbed by the news. I saw it and I said, yeah, I thought so. That's it. So how do you feel about Helmut now? It didn't uh, cause sleepless nights, so it was an end of an important chapter of my academic life, thing of the past. The past might be gone, but it's still powerful. Conrad knows that better than most. Helmut died in Dresden in 1992, just a few years after East Germany collapsed. And I'm even not quite sure if I ever should be or will be in Dresden, whether I'm going to visit the, the grave and put a stone on it, what Jews are normally doing, to keep the memory alive on that. Conrad is someone that has lived through and studied the extremes of human behaviour. War, fascism, the Holocaust. For him, Helmut was just one part of a complicated chapter in human history. And maybe, in East Germany, Helmut was just doing what he had to do to survive. He did a kind of life and career which enabled him to have all that travel and all these privileges of the GDR. Uh, He was someone, he was known. He could research, he could publish with some problem. In the West, he would have been a nobody. Mm. Yeah, I think that is what he knew and he saw no need to to immigrate or to to ask for permission to leave. But he was still a good man. Oh, what is good? I mean, I do not impose moral judgment or these kind of qualities on, on a former friend. If he would have conveyed or revealed that he was one of the Stasi, presumably I would have stopped uh, working with him. And that's the end of the story. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story we have to hear, send it on over to us, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Today's episode was reported by Joey Watson on the lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri peoples. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass, sound design and engineering on this episode by Simon Branthwaite. The supervising producers were me and Sophie Townsend. Our brilliant executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. If you're looking for more days like these, you can find our back catalogue of episodes on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Hi, I'm Veronica Milsom. If you're looking for another great ABC podcast to wrap your ears around, try the podcast I host. It's called Dig the Ring In. It's the wild, unbelievable and true story of Australia's most infamous horse race. And the horse at the centre of it? Fine cotton. A bunch of low-level crooks with high-level ambitions. A ringin'. Who ended up blundering through what may be the stupidest scam ever attempted in the history of horse racing. A -a ring-a-ding-ding, mate. What people find fascinating about the fine cotton ringin' 
is that it was a caper, it was a farce, it was a fiasco, it was a farrago. It was also a whodunit. That's right, they dyed a horse. They took their gloves off, they opened up another stubby. Gillespie looked around and said, He'll come up Trump's in the morning. I'm sure of it. But he didn't. As it turned out, it doesn't take two horses here. There must be a chemical disbalance here somewhere. The horse come out red. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> People are going to notice a red horse at the racetrack, bright red, the colour of a stop sign. And that is really relevant here because it should have said to them all, stop, do not proceed. Dig the ring in. You can hear it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.